Hello and welcome to the Open Labour podcast. My name is James Gibson and as always I'm joined by my co-host Tom Hinchcliffe. Hi Tom. Hi, hello. And today is the second episode of our National Executive Committee election specials. And we're joined today by a very special guest, uh, somebody I'm a big fan of. It's Anne Black. Anne is somebody who many of our listeners will have heard of, having been an important figure in the Labour Party now for the past 20 years, uh, since she was first elected to the NEC back in 2000. Anne has an accomplished track record on the NEC, uh, and some of her notable contributions include writing a paper for the committee expressing concern about the invasion of Iraq, She also spoke out against Labour government's plans to introduce ID cards. Uh, And Anne actually became the chair of the NEC from 2009 to 2010. Anne's been described as independently minded and left-wing and a swing vote on the NEC. And that quote was from the New Statesman. Welcome, Anne. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Good. So let's start then with... Well, for the big congratulations, because you're already on the ballot. You've already had enough nominations. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very grateful to the CLPs that have nominated me and oh. still remember me two years on. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we, we, we actually encouraged our members to continue nominating you uh, in the, the last NEC election special podcast that we did last week. Um, so hopefully members will continue to do that. But it's, it really is fantastic that you're, you're already on the ballot. We'll go go straight to it, if you don't mind, Anne, and, and ask you why you're standing. Um, it's a good question, because I really hadn't been planning a comeback at all. Uh, I guess I, um, I think that members deserve to know what's going on. And I, I want to know what's going on. And what's Absolutely. been happening over the last two years is we've been getting leaks. We've been getting stuff on Twitter. Uh, yeah. rumours, uh, stuff which, um, fake news, some of some things which I know aren't true, some things yeah. which I suspect are dubious, but the, the, there are very few facts. And what I always tried to do on the NEC was to put the facts out there. Absolutely. I would give my views, but if people yeah. had different views, that's fine. But at least we have the information. I also think the parties changed. Um, Obviously, we lost the fourth general election. We have a new leader and deputy leader. Between 2017 and 2019, 100,000 members left the party. Between the December election and March this year, 120,000 members joined or rejoined. Wow. I believe there's a new mood for unity, for beginning to look outwards, for talking to voters. We have half a million members, over half a million members, but we actually need 14 or 15 million people to vote Labour. And we need to start talking to them as well. Of course. And um, the final thing is actually this is a successful open labour campaign for single transferable vote. Mm-hmm. And that should mean that we have among the nine CLP places, we have people who represent a much more diverse range of party opinion. Yes. Instead of uh, a block getting 100% of yep. the seats on yes. 60% of the vote. Yeah. And I don't think that's healthy, whether it's um, momentum or progress or any block, because the party is diverse and yes. the NEC section should reflect that. And we did. We actually did a, a special on uh, single transferable votes on, on, in fact, it was our first podcast. So if listeners want to go back and, and listen to that podcast to, to know a little bit more about the nuances of single transferable vote, that'd be great. I don't suppose you want to venture any uh, any examples of misinformation, or is that is that a bit sensitive, or is anything off the um, head? I put you on the spot. I think we'll probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we'll probably leave it. But I, Got I quite guess, right. Yes. I'm trying to get an inside scoop there, aren't I? Sorry. <laughs> it's always one to avoid that one. I find. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to get any more lawyers involved. <laughs> <laughs> There's too much of that already. I think. I mean, too much yeah. Of that already, yes. And you were speaking about 
single transferable vote and less blocks, less slates of people, more uh, representative from different wings of the party working together. You yourself were part of the centre-left grassroots alliance for 18 years, but that ended in 2018. Uh, what changed in that time? I always stood on the grassroots science platform from mm. 1998 actually onwards and uh, uh, for most of that time it was a genuinely broad coalition of groups across the centre-left and left of the party and within that there was no real kind of three-line whip. We agreed on common principles, public ownership, uh, internationalism, equalities, workers' rights, and we put together a core statement. Within that, individual yeah. members were free to speak and vote uh, according to their own judgment on individual issues. Yes. We did agree on most things, particularly in when I first came on to the NEC in 2000, there were four of us uh, in a minority on a 33-member NEC. There was myself, Christine Shawcroft, uh, Mark Seddon of Tribune and um, Dennis Skinner, of course. From the, and so we were the four that were kind of Tony Blair's awkward squad. What happened in 2018, well, 2016 and even more in 2018, was that changed? And it became less focused on policy and more around an individual. So yes. what was the centre-left grassroots alliance morphed into the hash JC9? Yes, yes. I've always um, respected the mandate won by any leader, whether it was yeah. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, then Quite Jeremy right, Corbyn. Yes. And of course, the Jeremy Corbyn won convincingly, not once, but twice. Yeah. But turning it into a personality cult um, just felt wrong to me, particularly yes. when we actually differed very little on policy. If you look yeah. at the policies that the hash jc9 stood on and my own there was very little difference yeah so i wasn't particularly comfortable with that however um i was saved um from the need to having to make my own decision by them deciding they weren't yeah. comfortable with <laughs> me so yeah uh, i do still have good friends in the campaign for labor party democracy to this day and i stay in touch with them but it was something which was probably inevitable. I hope we're now coming back to discussions which are more policy yes. based and not. I, th I think that I think that sentiment will resonate very much with our with our members in Open Labour. Actually, that we pretty much supported just about all of the policies of the uh, of the leadership over the past five years mm -hmm. but there was an issue with culture there that I think some of the open labor members and, and which is why people joined open labor felt uncomfortable with so yeah that sentiment will certainly resonate I think that's um, quite the essence of open labor in a lot of senses mm -hmm. what you yeah. just said Anne about it being a policy driven yeah. debate rather than yeah. a cult of personality clash which is uh, you know what some people including myself think has been dominating the yeah. dominating the headlines for the last few years but if if you were elected what what would your priorities be i know obviously you've you've sat on the nec before would they have changed is is there new challenges going forward at first i've been out for two years and there have been a lot of changes and i wouldn't just it's not going to be like i walked back in the day after i left and particularly with remote meetings I would not barge into my first meeting and start saying, this is what we should do, that's wrong, this is right. I would prioritise re-engaging with members, and that means not just reporting to them, but asking them before decisions are made. Something I'd like to do is to continue uh, reaching out more widely. There are very few good things about COVID-19, but one of the upsides is engaging with members all across the country and CLPs out in the middle of nowhere inviting Hillary Benn to be their guest speaker. Mm. Uh, last Thursday, it was the first time I'd been to Scotland, <laughs> to a meeting in Scotland. And I'd love to find ways of keeping that part of it, as well as obviously meeting in person where you get the personal contact, you get the yeah. kind of side talks, you get to go out for a drink afterwards and all the usual social things.
I think it would bring in members from places that don't have any Labour representation and sometimes yeah. wonder about reasons for keeping going. We need to get back to campaigning effectively. Mm. I hope that NEC meetings would be shorter and what happened during my last <laughs> couple of years, and this is not just the NEC, but at regional level, at CLP yeah. level, meetings yeah. would get longer and longer, oh. but fewer and fewer minds would be changed. So yeah. um, <laughs> I think that's like... a sentiment that, yeah, again, everybody will uh, appreciate and <laughs> longer arguments, Longer arguments and less resolution. Yeah. <laughs> on, 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 the que on the question of whether Jeremy Corbyn should be on the ballot paper without needing more nominations, I think that took three or four hours at the NEC yeah. <laughs> and the vote after four hours was exactly the same as it would have been if you'd taken it as soon as people walked in sure. the room. I'm not saying that obviously people have always come into the meeting with views and um, maybe the trade unions have been more disciplined about this because they've had very clear priorities, particularly yeah. during the Tony Blair years where to be blunt, he disrespected trade union leaders and trade union members and Absolutely. just a wasted opportunity. Yeah. So people would come in with an idea of where they were, but it was still possible to put arguments forward. Other people would listen to them. They'd reply to what you'd said and sometimes minds were changed. So... If we could get back, that would be good. It would be yeah. a model, I think, for the party at other levels. And the final thing I'd like to do is something on finances. In 2011, the way that money went to CLPs, the way that subscriptions were dealt with, was changed so that um, overall money went from more to smaller CLPs and less to the larger CLPs. But a lot of the subscription income was centralised and local parties could bid for it. And gradually that kind of diminished. First, successful bids depended on who you knew and whether your regional office thought you should have an organiser. But second, I'm a CLP secretary who haven't been asked to bid for anything for a year. So money is piling up at the centre, while local parties, we have three times the membership, which is fantastic. It costs more to hire rooms, it costs more to write to members. More of that money needs to come down to local parties. In 2018, the Democracy Review and the NEC and Conference promised to review not only the membership subscription rates, where... £50 is a lot, actually, for our, mm. um, the people we hope to represent, but also promised to look at how that money was shared. Now, I haven't heard a Dickie Bird from our current NEC members, and somebody mm. needs to go back, dig out that promise and honour it. So that's one of the kind of nerdy things I would do. Well, a lot of members don't understand that, do they, as well? I mean, you know, at sort of branch level, you'd be in the run-up to a local council election. You'd, um, you'd get members that would make donations to the Labour Party, the National Labour Party, expecting it to go straight back down to the branch to the local council campaign. And of course it doesn't. So it was always emails getting whizzed around saying, you know, please donate to the branch rather than to the Labour Party. But it, it is a shame that, that that's the way that it's run, isn't it? That it's difficult if, if somebody does make a donation to the National Party, difficult to get those funds into, say, a local, lo local council campaign or mayoral campaign. Yes, you could change the website so that it said, do you want your donations to go locally and nationally? And there was they could, I, couldn't they? Something I discovered <laughs> recently, which they were doing, if people joined, they would fill in the monthly rate, they would tick that, and then yep. beneath that there would be a box which said, um, would you like to donate so much extra, 10, 20, 30, 50 pounds yeah. a month? Yeah. And the default was 10 pounds a month. So if you scrolled past that, yes. it would add 10 pounds on. And mm. I wasn't the only CLP secretary to get members who joined on the reduced rate, which is 2 pounds 27. Yes. And after three months, they get their bank statement. 
and suddenly it's £12.27 being yes. deducted. Which is a large I, amount. And I had somebody in, in tears. She said, I've retired. Yes. I can't afford it. Is this yes. what I have to pay? Yes. So I hope they've taken that off. But, yes. uh, you know, it was in the small print, but it was just uh, we need to be upfront asking members, mm. saying yeah. what, you know, why money is important, why we don't want to rely on a few rich donors, whether they come back or not. Yeah. Uh, but just don't be kind of sneaky about mm. it. Oh, I, think I, agree. Don't, yeah, I think the rich, so, the rich donors are coming back, aren't they, slightly? But you're right in that we need to be more transparent about how we tap members up for money because, as you say, the people that we represent, the extra £10 a month or the extra £20 a month that they might miss in the small print is an unbelievable amount of money um, to lose yeah. a year to a lot of people. So, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Transparency is key with any kind of finances that we're taking from members. So, yeah, I think you're right. So, and you 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 were on the NEC for for twenty years. First selected in in two thousand, as I said in the intro. I, I've already mentioned a couple of your your um, achievements in that time. The paper expressing the concern about the invasion of um, Iraq and speaking out against ID cards in two thousand and five. But what else would you like to to talk about about your your that you consider as your main achievements from your time on the NEC? It's interesting that you mentioned those because they go back to days when we had a Labour government yes. and although the NEC didn't and never has directly made policy, we could raise issues and we could yes. get things changed. And the National Policy Forum and the Policy Commissions met with ministers, not shadow ministers. So, yes. um, so I was thinking a bit more recently, I suppose a couple of things. The first was in um, 2010, um, together with Tony Lloyd, who chaired the Parliamentary Party then, we worked together to get Diane Abbott nominated for the leadership ballot in that yes. year. Uh, Tony Lloyd and I wrote to every MP saying it really isn't a good look when we've got four white men in their 40s, all of whom <laughs> yeah. uh, were cabinet members until we yeah. lost the general election. We really need um, candidates who are diverse, gender-wise, ethnically, and politically, more importantly. Yes. And she got onto the ballot at yeah. um, probably five minutes past the deadline. I think her final nominator was David Miliband, who was yes. a candidate himself, <laughs> which was mm. amusing. And if you roll that one forward, it kind of set a framework for nominating Jeremy Corbyn in 2015. So I read all about that in Protest and Power by uh, David Cogan. I don't know if you've read the book. Yes, but, uh, yes, I have. Yeah. I need to. I have a list of corrections to send. Yeah. Him, but, but that is yes. Yeah. John John O'Farrell. Things can only get better. Also picked that up, and he yes. said that without people nominating just to broaden the di debate yeah but never thinking <laughs> of the result in, yes. in somebody like that getting elected did yeah. lead to jeremy corbyn's election mm. in 2015 and i still think it was the right thing to do because when we came to 2015 and members would mail me and they'd say Oh, really? I'm not keen on any of the above. As Yvette mm. Cooper, Andy Burnham, Liz Kendall. Uh, it was just all sort of, no, none of yeah. the above. <laughs> In interestingly, uh, when I said, well, okay, who else, if not Jeremy Corbyn? A number of them said Keir Starmer. Uh, really? he'd, only been, wow. he'd only been an MP for five minutes at the time. Do you think? Um, do you think people? It was it was to do with Andy's position with the unions and sort of that 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 sort of turned people off because he he was the lead candidate, wasn't he, at that time? I can't really. I'm just thinking back. It was more that um, they'd been part of the previous Labour government. They were identified yeah. with it, and if Tony. Blair and Gordon Brown, apart from the, the wasted opportunities on policy, mm. they never did any succession planning. So all the people in the 
shadow cabinet on the front bench never developed their own personalities, their own identities. Yeah. So when they went, when Gordon Brown went, it was people who hadn't really, people didn't know who they were except sort of followers of the previous regime, which is why Jeremy Corbyn came along with a, um, you know, refreshing honesty. And of course, he had a record that he could defend that was very different from mm. anyone who'd been part of the Blair Brown government. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, the, the vacuum of personalities that we had coming out of yeah. the Labour government, I think you can blame that for a lot of the election disasters as well. A lot of the time, obviously, not last year's, isn't that slightly different? But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think that's a good assessment of it. I think that is a lot of the reason why Corbyn ended up being so popular with the membership was because as you say he came in with refreshing honesty but also a, a personality that wasn't whether you think it's tarred or not with the last Labour government then at least it wasn't tied to it or linked to it in any way so I think yeah I think that's right. And possibly the other thing I mean I, I tended to um, be very focused on rule books and constitutional changes which is not great headlines but I did finally get the national policy forum elected by one member one vote mm. uh, that took 10 years and that involved working with the trade unions I remember sitting there and the chair of the session this was against the NEC's recommendation and I was a member of the NEC so that's quite sort of interesting yeah the chair tried to run the session so far into the lunch break that everyone would have gone off to fringe meetings and i don't know <laughs> if you know byron taylor he used to be the national trade union liaison officer i was working yeah. with him and he said all the trade union delegates are sat there and they will stay sat there till the vote <laughs> and um, tony tony robinson was also very helpful on that um mm. Yeah. So we got that through, and by then the left had become converted to one member, one vote, because at that time they didn't control conference. So there was sort of a shift back in the 1990s. Conference had to be sovereign, and one member, one vote was a Blairite plot. <laughs> but then conference started getting I just sort of reversed positions several times how times have changed very very yeah, quickly indeed. <laughs> yes i remember when the um the left was absolutely against the leader choosing their own shadow cabinet or cab yeah shadow cabinet yeah yes but then of course ed Miliband changed that and with jeremy corbyn as leader of course the last <laughs> thing and yeah. <laughs> anyone wanted was for the parliamentary Labour Party to elect his shadow yeah. cabinet because as somebody I better not name said to me, Jeremy would be surrounded by people who hate him which yeah. Yeah. wouldn't have been good. So wow. thanks for that, Anne. So a lot of members won't understand the, the role of the NEC in relation to the leadership. They just see the sort of leader of the party as sovereign. Um, obviously, that's not the case. Could you explain just a little bit about how the NEC and the leadership could or should, if you like, work together and how you would promote that if you were to be re-elected to the NEC? Oh, well... Broadly, so the leadership sets the political direction of the party, and that's particularly true in government, where the idea that a Labour Prime Minister has time to get 39 people in a room um, to have seven-hour debates before yes. they can do anything doesn't work. And the, the NEC is... is primarily responsible for administration, organisation, procedures, elections, campaigning, mm. staffing, and so forth. It also has oversight of the policy-making process. Yes. So it's responsible for the National Policy Forum and the policy commissions. And that's another area where reform was promised in 2018, because yeah. the, the National Policy Forum does not work. Every member 
Um, so, so what? Are, so what is that? Just, just for the, um, yeah, just okay. for members that might not know, what's the National Policy Forum? Okay, the National Policy Forum is that. Well, I'll, I'll start with the NEC, which represents yeah. um, all stakeholders in the Labour Party. So there are people elected directly by members, uh, yeah. councillors, the Scottish and Welsh leaders. Yeah. Three people chosen by the leader, the deputy leader and leader. The um, three backbenchers elected by the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, somebody from the Socialist Societies, the Treasurer, 13 people elected by the trade unions, uh, a new disability place which is being yeah. elected for the first time. And I hope everyone will vote for George Linders Hammond. Yeah, he was on the last podcast. Money. Yeah, <laughs> great well, guy. Great, great. Um, uh, he really is, so I hope um, he'll be successful there. Although that's one of the seats where the unions have half the votes, which is ah. perhaps another issue to explore. The National Policy Forum kind of has the same composition, but there are more people. It's yes. um, 200, 200 plus. It has full meetings. Well, the last proper full meeting was in 2014 when we agreed 2015 manifesto yeah uh, and since then it's met twice but it also has policy commissions which cover eight kind of broad um, sections of policy okay and again the, the policy commissions have members of the NEC members of the National Policy Forum and members of the front bench yeah. They have been meeting and putting out consultation documents and the aim is to represent members' views directly to the front bench. Yes. That has improved, particularly since every National Policy Forum member is on a policy commission. Well, again, when I first came on to the National Policy Forum, it was very strictly controlled by... Yeah. What I would call the Blairites for shorthand. But yes. um, be blunt, I didn't get onto a policy commission, so I was on the NEC and they had to put yeah. me on something. So they meet and um, discuss policy. And also, at NEC meetings, probably the best way to have an influence is to bring up issues with the leader directly. And that yes. can be done in a non-confrontational, hostile way. Yeah. I never kind of sat there and sort of... Well, I get the impression that's your style, yes. Yeah. ...doing something. But, for instance, so in Oxford and many other places, there was um, some concern about an apparent change of policy on Kashmir, yeah. which um, didn't really recognise the, the uh, appalling things that have been going on there. Now, in fact, the policy in Keir Starmer's letter was fairly similar to what was in Ian Lavery's letter mm. in November, but it was it did go against a motion agreed at conference. And whatever you know, whatever the fine details, it was not something that um, was well handled. And I believe that was raised at the NEC, and rightly, it's the kind of thing that I would have raised. There's a big debate going on about schools opening. Should every child be back in school? And, of course, you've got Boris Johnson uh, saying, oh, well, same old Labour Party and hock to the trade unions who give them all yes. their money. Well, that was the narrative, wasn't it? Yeah. Which is bizarre because none of the teaching unions are affiliated to the Labour Party. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't give the Labour Party It's not really the money. point, though, is it, with Boris Johnson and Dominic Collins? Yeah. So, so, why do, so to go back to that question yeah, then about sure. why the... Um, yeah, the, the National Policy Forum doesn't work. What, what is it specifically that's not working? Is it, it's not changing, it's, it's not getting to the, the front bench or it's not meeting enough? What, what's the issue? Members, every member yeah. elects five representatives from within their region yeah. and another two that were elected at regional conference. So every yes. member should have seven people that they can contact directly and get their views fed upwards. Yes. I did a lot of constituency meetings and I always asked 
who represents your international policy forum? Yeah. And the most common response was I, they couldn't name anyone. Yeah. Or they name one person. So yeah. in theory, you have these connections between yes. uh, the mass membership and their elected representatives on the National yes. Policy Forum who they could yeah. talk to, but they never knew who they were. That's really interesting, Anne. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you have to be relatively informed and to, to know that actually the process for changing policy would be to put a motion to branch that goes to CLP and that potentially goes to conference that's what sort of most members would would believe the way of sort of getting their policy ideas to sort of a national platform but I think a lot of members won't recognize actually that yeah they can get in contact with their representative from the national policy forum I think that's really important to point out. That's important all year round because conference meets once a year. I have some some of our newer members have been asking well if we don't have conference how will Labour make policy but we actually have to do it continuously and again particularly in government Yes, uh, you have to uh, events happen you have to respond to them or the leader has to respond to them and you need the, the, the policy commissions and the National Policy Forum were supposed to provide that continuous dialogue. The reason that it still exists is that the trade unions quite like it. It works for them because yeah. it gives them face time with front mm. benches on a regular basis. Yeah which uh, and the unions have they have their own policy making methods but their channels are much kind of shorter their lines of accountability are shorter and less diverse yes um so they would want something that maintains the good points but it does not work for members so what would you change well it's going to lead into the next question actually because I asked George, and I'll be asking all the other candidates that Open Labour are supporting. We've just lost four elections in a row. You've already mentioned that. And and the question is, what do you think went wrong and and how do we recover? Now, the reason that I've said actually what we're talking about with the National Policy Forum may dovetail into that question is because I, I suspect that part of your answer will be to do with actually being more representative of Labour Party members from what you were saying there. But I might be wrong, of course. Well, that's an interesting one because the 2014 National Policy Forum, that's when Angela Eagle was the chair. It was the most consensual and and friendly final National Policy Forum that I've ever been to. The previous ones, um, the key players would stay up till four or five in the morning haggling things out and then we would get 150 pages of stuff still warm from the printer and and just voted through so angela eagle did a lot of consultations she got everyone on the same page and we signed off a few things and then we had dinner and went to the bar so uh, it worked very well but the downside was that it was very consensual but it wasn't exciting in 2017 we had no time for any of that there were conference calls with NPF National Policy Forum representatives, but basically Andrew Fisher wrote the whole manifesto in Jeremy Corbyn's office in two weeks, and it mm. seemed to um, be far more effective and dynamic mm. and cut through with yeah. members and voters than something that was the result of a. So you, you kind of wonder whether there should be some sort of compromise between a definite lead and then fine tuning. Or, of course, knowing where members are and where voters are. Um, But, yeah, going back to losing elections. We've been losing for a long time and we haven't paid attention. And I really do recommend the Labour Together report on this, which says that this is not something that started in 2015 or even 2010. Mm. If I was looking back and I remember... In 2008, when Gordon Brown was still Prime Minister, Labour lost the Glasgow East by-election to the SNP. Yes. That should have been a warning signal. We were losing seats in our traditional core areas, our heartlands, through that time. And the assumption was people will have nowhere else to go. But first Mm -hmm. they stayed home. Then they voted for UKIP. 
or Brex, the Brexit party. Mm. And finally, they voted for the Tories. So it's something that we never really dealt with at the time. What I would have liked, I've always been a member of the Labour campaign for electoral reform, and I still am. Yes. But one of the things that First Past the Post does, it means that you ignore unwinnable seats, which means yep. that our members in Surrey yeah. are, are rather less than motivated by suggesting that they go to, I don't know, to, to their nearest marginal seat instead. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it means that we don't do the work in what we used to call our safe seats. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when we kind of look around, we actually realise that they were never safe. If you, have a, if you have proportional representation. Robin Cook said something very perceptive on that. He said that no government in power will introduce proportional representation because they've got into power without it. Yeah. Once they lose power, they're no longer able to. Yes. So... Robin Cook was right then, and he, you know, like Cassandra... As he was often he, right with a lot of things he said. <laughs> like, like, like Cassandra, he was absolute... Yes. His predictions were accurate, but nobody believed him. In, in terms of the last election, do you think the NEC could have done things better in the running to put us on a better war footing? Because as much as it was a snap election, critics did say we were unprepared. And as you say, the funding for the... The now red wall seats that the Tories have beat us in. Do you think they could have been better protected and that funding could have been allocated and, and manpower could have been allocated better? Probably, uh, the, the biggest failure of the NEC in the run-up to the election was that uh, when it was called, and, and it wasn't a surprise, 2017 was out of the blue, okay? Mm. Yeah. And in 2017, the NEC imposed candidates in every seat. We had about 12 days Mm, to get I can remember. From 2017 onwards, every CLP was saying, please, can we have a candidate? By 2019, dozens of them, I mean, over 60 in the southeast alone, had no candidate in place. Wow. And instead, the NEC, in its wisdom, decided that we should put prioritised trigger ballots. Mm. So I'm secretary for two CLPs in Oxford, right? In Oxford East. I spent the whole of October running a trigger ballot for Annalise Dodds, yeah. where she got over 99% of the vote at branch <laughs> meetings. Meanwhile, Oxford West and Abingdon did not have a candidate until the yeah. day before nominations closed, yeah. and they got a candidate that was not chosen by their members. So that was um, just the sort of final straw. On campaigning in general it's like you're always fighting the last battle mm. in 2017 uh we were not close to winning the election there's um, some, that's one of the bits of fake news and i can provide mm. statistical deconstructions of that argument but it was understandable that when you're start 20 points behind in the polls you put yeah. resources into seats that look marginal. I, in our own committee room in Oxford East, one of our members was said, well, I'm going off to Reading East now. And I screamed <laughs> at him. I said, look, you know, Reading East will never win. You need to stay in Oxford East. We could lose it. So he went to Reading East. We got 62% of the vote in Oxford East and, and won Reading East as well. So we were it was entirely understandable that money was put into those seats. What happened in 2019 was the reverse. It's the no-no-go mm. areas, so we will put lots of money into Boris Johnson's seat and yeah. Ian Duncan Smith's uh, in yeah. Oxford. A lot of our members went to Swindon North, where the Tory majority went up from 8,000 to 16,000. <laughs> God. But it was, it was, yeah. it's just always fighting the last battle. Um, yeah. yeah, I think we've touched on making policy quite enough now. But <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we don't want to bore, bore people with the technicalities, but it is really interesting because a lot of people won't know the bits of the NEC and the National Policy Forum that you've mentioned. A lot of people won't even, even heard of a lot of that. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I certainly hadn't until I started looking into this. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. 
just just quickly on on a few policy areas. I mean, we're we're going through the transition period now after leaving the European Union. What do you think Labour's approach should be now we've kind of formally left? And obviously, uh, the the government says now that we can we might have a deal next month, but it seems like they're saying that every month. Well, sadly, I recognise that ninety percent of the party membership voted remain. Even in leave seats, probably two-thirds of the Labour voters voted yeah. remain, but we've left. And um, it's ironic, really, because all through the last 20 years or more, the assumption's always been that Europe would break the Tory party. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it yeah. came close to breaking the Labour party, particularly in 2016, where the... Mm. Um, the so-called chicken coup and everything that yeah. followed was, yes. arose yes. from a collective nervous breakdown yeah. on the part of, you know, across the Labour Party, the Labour movement, including the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, however, there is no mileage in calling for an extension of the transition period, and Keir Starmer was right not to do that. It would just be seen as another attempt to delay Brexit yes. and actually leaving various people through everything at that through the whole of last year and we failed. Yeah. So the only thing we can do is make sure that all the consequences of a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit are laid at Boris Johnson's door yes. because he will try to blame them on the coronavirus. coronavirus yeah. And anything to do with trade, the economy not recovering, unemployment going up, difficulties in travel, the whole lot. He'll say, oh, well, we have this virus. You know, we can't help that. Where things are clearly laid at the door of, the, 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 of leaving Brexit with no deal or a hard deal, then we need to be absolutely clear that that's where the responsibility lies. Do you think? It's do you think we're yeah. at, uh, we're at, uh, we're in danger of rehashing old arguments? I'm playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you. Yeah, but, sure. Do you think we are in danger of repeating the issue that essentially lost the trust of a lot of voters in 2017, 2019? If we keep banging the drum for what will be seen as uh, remain like. Remain. I know what you're saying, Tom, but I, I think um, it's important to to be nuanced, isn't it? Rather than say it's Brexit, because you know so many people did vote to leave the European Union and voted for the Conservative Party in um, last year. Yeah. It's about saying it's, it's Boris Johnson's handling of Brexit, isn't it? That's the nuance. And there are plenty of business people who ought to lead on this. Yeah. Uh, we could let the Lib Dem, let the Lib Dems, Lib Dems, there's a point. <laughs> but we could let the, let the Lib Dems lead on the policy side of it. I know Lib Dems who are disappointed that Labour has not been backing them and calling for an extension period, but they said the Lib Dems are Remainers. We, we have always tried to represent Leavers and Remainers, and that's another difference between 2017 and 2019. In 2017, both Leave and Remain voters sort of believed we were on their side. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and by 2019, that constructive ambiguity wasn't possible. The other thing I would add is that um, you know it took about nine months before people started seriously calling for Jeremy Corbyn to go, apart from a few sort of irreconcilables. Um, I'm seeing that Keir Starmer must go from about a week after he was elected, which really is odd. <laughs> but one myth is that this is Keir Starmer's Brexit policy that lost the 2019 election. It is actually Labour Party policy. It was agreed by conference. It was agreed by the Clause 5 meeting. It was agreed by the Shadow Cabinet and it was agreed by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and the idea that Keir Starmer could have single-handedly um, overcome um, what by then was a party um, run by Jeremy Corbyn's supporters. It, mm. So, you know, that one doesn't fly. But the, and the idea of rejoining is clearly crazy. Yeah. Um, no. yeah. yeah. But I mean, then we, then we would be at risk of rehashing old arguments. I think what you've said about the extension and it all been 
Keir Starmer's Brexit policy that lost us the election. This is just, you know, sour grapes from some people, I think. It's not a lot of people on the left at all, but it is people that are using it as a stick to beat him with immediately after he's been elected in order to kind of undermine his leadership already. And I'd just say respect the mandate. Yeah, indeed, respect the mandate. <laughs> it, was a, it, was wrong, it was wrong to undermine Jeremy Corbyn when he was elected in 2015. and 20, It was wrong to try and get rid of him in 2016. Yeah, it's wrong yeah. to undermine the leader now. And you just, uh, you know... Well, you can say that as a person of principle. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you've put, tied your colours to the mask and, and with those with those principles in the sense that you supported Jeremy Corbyn being automatically on the ballot uh, in yeah. 2016, didn't you? Which would be seen as, as somebody who's supporting Jeremy Corbyn. But now you're turning around and you're saying you're, you also respect Keir Starmer's mandate. And I think that's very laudable. And, and again, a lot of our members in Open Labour will will respect that position and it's a position that a lot of our members hold I think. I mean otherwise you have otherwise you have a leadership challenge every 10 yeah, minutes absolutely. And, you know yeah. we've just had enough of that. I mean it's still fine to critique the leadership I think oh, you know absolutely. the leadership that's, needs that's to be not, critiqued. This does not mean agreeing with everything no. the leader says or does but yeah. there are ways of doing it which do not you know some of the the language around Black Lives Matter and mm. whether yeah. using moment in the sense yeah. of a defining moment or whether it was um, seen as dismissive, if that gave rise to misunderstandings or, or, or you know, a belief that he didn't care or didn't get it, then clearly it's a learning experience that you don't kind of immediately yeah. splatter him all over the ceiling. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it comes to something when you've got you've got people like Owen Jones now that are, even even he's saying you know don't undermine the leadership and the left's energy should be focused on supporting the policies that they can really get behind. Yeah. And we've got this question about the pandemic. Obviously, you have to talk to everybody about this. But how how do you think it's changed politics, and how do you think it's going to change the way the Labour Party? kind of responds to crises in the future? Do you think it's kind of put more nuance into the debate about public health and about public services, or what's your opinion on that? The word unprecedented is overused, but this is unprecedented. If you were going back a year and you were told that the, the Labour Party conference, all the party conferences, would be completely cancelled, right? Nobody, no five, six thousand people meeting in Liverpool. And you were asked to say, what could possibly lead to that? Um, it, it, it feels like living in science fiction. But one of the problems is that it drowns out all normal politics. So everything yeah. is about, particularly with the daily briefings, which you could argue whether seeing more of Matt Hancock was uh, positive or negative. Um, <laughs> But there you go. It's very hard for Labour to get attention. One of the mm. things that Keir Starmer's people did do, Boris Johnson addressed the nation at a televised address. And uh, Keir Starmer's people did get him the right of reply on that based on a precedent set when mm. Eden uh, invaded Suez. So uh, wow, in the 1950s. But it's quite hard to get airtime. And there's also this sort of balance of in a national crisis, do you undermine the, the national effort? And it's a bit different from war where, mm. you know, once our boys are in action, yes. do you actually do things which make it likely that they will get killed? Yes. It's different. Yeah. But it's still very, I don't think there is. There was, there was certainly a clamouring in the polls, I think, for Labour to support the government in yeah. crisis to put the, the coronavirus legislation through. That's what I saw anyway. Well, I think Owen Jones is going to talk to members, as he, as he does. He always puts himself about. He's very good at speaking yeah. to members uh, and happy to do that. And he was talking about how public tend to rally around the government in, in a time of crisis. Of course, that's usually war. So we have to be conscious of that as a party and, and not be overly critical otherwise it'll be seen to be sort of damaging so 
it's, it's interesting that um, Owen Jones is now one, one of the moderates compared to, <laughs> to the people who hang out on Twitter. There is one sense in which um, it's not entirely unhelpful, and that's that the Labour Party is still internally polarised at various levels, along various dimensions in various ways, and there are things playing their way through the party, through the NEC, through the courts. And if we were in quiet times, news-wise, Labour's internal splits would have been in the headlines day after day after day. I'm hoping we can come through that and, and the NEC, if it can start working in a more consensual way itself, can set a model. But it, um, uh, there are things which basically have to be sorted out within the party. I'm not saying they should be hidden mm. uh, from members or anyone else. I'm in favour of members knowing what's going on, but when every little difference or every misunderstanding is blown up in the, the sun and the mail, yeah, yeah. then that doesn't actually help solve the problems it's only in the express at the moment i've noticed <laughs> oh okay um yeah my my only experience of it is what the papers say on the you know the slot on the today program where you get three yeah. minutes which yeah 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 i mean do, aside from you know practical reasons about media scrutiny and things like that and getting our voices heard during the daily briefings and stuff in terms of the pandemic i think it's been clear that it's increased kind of public trust or public favourability in our public services, so the NHS especially, of course. Do you think that could play into our hands a little bit? I hope so. And of course, the Tories started out by saying local government could have whatever it takes and that yes. you know, the social care was um, wonderful as well as the NHS. We managed to get a waiver for NHS staff coming from abroad to save British people's lives, being made to pay to use the NHS themselves. Now that was, um, again, if you're absolutist, you should say they shouldn't have to charge thousands of pounds to renew their visas and mm. nobody should have to be charged for the NHS when they're paying tax. But sometimes we can fail to recognise that Labour is an opposition with a Tory majority of 80. And so if you can get a, an achievement which benefits some people, then that is that that is not nothing. I think I think what you touched on on, on the on the visas and the the charge for uh, migrant workers to use the NHS, I think that was met with such public outrage because of the yeah. pandemic. I don't think usually that would have had such public, you know, opposition. Mm -hmm from the general public, obviously Labour would have been loud on it because we usually are on these things, but I really don't think it would have forced the government into a U-turn without the public opposition because obviously, yeah, we've, we've got the 80 majority to contend with um, and, well, that, and that any U-turn. That means, that means picking things where the public are, are ready yeah. for the message. Hmm. On trans rights, just to change the subject totally, um, you, you've made it clear it's a big debate at the moment in the party or... Uh, it's always going to be a yeah. big issue. You made clear that trans rights are human rights. Trans women are women. Trans men are men. I think, obviously, I think that position is the right one, yeah. but it's also popular with our members. What would you say to those who have come under fire a bit recently who have a differing view? Well, I think there are two aspects to the whole trans sets of issues. The first is under party rules. It's quite clear that gender identity has been in the rule book since I think 2008. And that means that trans women, like other women, count towards women's quotas, they can apply for all women's shortlists yeah. and they're entitled to stand as women's officers. And, and that's been through conference, it's in the rule book. And I, I just, uh, I know there are people who, you know, I've had people refer me to lots and lots of articles um, interpreting gender identity in different ways, but uh, you, you know, conference policy how do you sort of started deleting them yeah then wider than that there's the gender recognition act which clearly makes it 
it's far too difficult and stressful for people to transition. So there needs to be a way where people can do it through self-identification. The Equality Act probably also needs reforming. At the same time, needs safeguards for all women, including trans women. And there's an NEC statement to that effect, which was agreed after several months of discussion with both women's groups, LGBT groups, trans groups, everyone, all, all stakeholders with an interest. And, and that was agreed as the NEC's considered position. And unless I see a reason to change it, I will not change. The pressing issue, I suppose, is that Tories seem to have shelved reforming the GRA again because it's kind of too messy. I think Labour needs to put pressure on them to pick up what they promised to do and and make Mm. progress on that. In the meantime, there are a, a, a small number of individuals coming from all sides who are just extremely rude to other individuals particularly on social media and then other people who say things which they believe but which they don't recognize are upsetting and hurtful to other people Um, i think they should just gently think about what they say before they say it Um, i think that's right i think I think the abuse that I've seen on social media on, on, on some sides of this debate in particular are just horrible. <laughs> like you, you wouldn't, I, I don't understand why you'd speak to anybody like that, let alone people that are meant to be in the same movement. I understand it's a, yeah. a really sensitive to- topic and things for some people, but it, some of the stuff goes far too. Far I, I, too put a, I put a statement on this out yesterday on Twitter and um, yeah had the usual people sort of piling on but I also had quite a lot of praise including from our local LGBT plus officer who is actually politically from coming from a slightly different place so I was Mm. very pleased to have his endorsement. No good that's good Um, good I mean as I say uh, um, (laughs) the kind of responses people get when they say anything about it it's just a bit of a minefield isn't it um but but people shouldn't people like yourself that make statements on this shouldn't have to expect a pile on on twitter every time you're vocal about it especially if you're just defending the rights of what is a minority group absolutely yeah so you've also said you support dual clp membership which is really interesting because i until kind of this year i'd never even heard of this idea, although it just makes complete sense. It, it would allow students to be members of two CLPs if they're registered to vote in two places. What, what benefits do you think that would bring to the party? Well, it would mean for students, it would be mean that they could be engaged where, throughout the year, half of mm. the year at the um, university or college, half the year where, where their parents live or where they go back to outside term. But it would also be a tremendous benefit for the CLP. We have a lot of students involved and uh, they, particularly at election times, they'll get up at five in the morning to do leaflet drops Mm -hmm. on election day and stuff that our older members won't necessarily be so into. They will go canvassing and campaigning and they they will provide candidates as well, some heavily student boards, so the best person to represent them is a student. Now, I'm secretary, but I don't know um, how to contact half of them because they're registered where they live out of term and sometimes Mm. that makes sense because it might be a marginal seat and their vote will be more used there but it'd be tremendously helpful from the CLP's point of view and from their point of view if we could engage all year round. Mm. I um, welcome the change to having a primary CLP and then a kind of secondary one. I can see technical objections because if you kind of I used to be a computer programmer in my other life if you change a a database structure so that at the moment everyone has a single address then making it or single CLP then changing it to two CLPs is you need a bit of redesign but I don't I don't think that should be beyond the party's capabilities there's people I've had had other requests Um, Labour International 
mm. would quite like to maintain links with the former CLP in the UK. And then I get a small number of members who say, I don't like my CLP. I would <laughs> quite like to go to the one next door, which looks much more fun. It's, it's like you can't, it's like when you can't choose your family, choosing your CLP. It's just yeah, I it's know. impossible. So, um, so I, I think, um, but certainly starting with students, it's just an obvious place. Students can vote in both places. And the like, in the locals, yeah. Yeah, so they can. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to have party mm. membership rights in both well, places. Well, James, James will know about all this because he was a councillor in Wheatwood, which is in a, mm -hmm. a, a kind of student constituency in Leeds Northwest, isn't it, James? And and yeah. it's, it's hard to get hold of individual students. But when I was an organiser in Leeds for a while, and you have difficulty getting in touch with them, but when you do get in touch with the Labour Club, which is the only way you can get in touch with all the students, yeah. you just hope they're social media kind of works well enough that they can get the message out to people to come campaigning but when it works they bring 40 50 people to a session mm. it's absolutely crazy the amount yeah. of the amount of streets you can get through that you wouldn't be able to get through in the campaign otherwise is just unbelievable definitely it's also uh, we need to sort out delegate rights the labor club can send delegates and sometimes they send me names and they're not on the membership system so i get in touch with the labor club and say you know, I can't find so-and-so. Is it possible that they're not registered here? They're registered at home. Uh, and if they want to be a delegate, they need to transfer their membership. So they transfer it mm. and that's fine. But I don't see why they can't be delegates in both places. They're not going to be at... Well, actually, come to think of it, with Zoom, they could be at two in two meetings at the same time in different if it was remote, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it, will, it will take a while to work through, but I'm definitely committed to the principle. Yeah, no, I think it's a good principle to be committed to. I think practically it would work really well. Um, it's just ironing out the, yeah, the kind there's of some wrinkles there, isn't there? But yeah. Yeah, but there will be. I mean, again, the pandemic, it just yeah. <laughs> changes the way you think about absolutely everything, even internal Labour Party policy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just one more for you then, Anne, just before we finish. You mentioned earlier on about campaigning virtually and how you had your meeting in Scotland and that one of your priorities is engaging with members. You're interacting with members on Twitter using the hashtag AskAnne, which seems to be quite, seems to be quite successful. I mean, you've, you've been yeah. interacting with a lot of issues on there where members can send you questions. Is that, is that proving an effective way of campaigning in such weird times? Well, we'll see what the results are. I've had a, I've got a stack of questions which I have to go back to to answering. My 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 campaign team are on at me on this. But um, I just did want to sort of coming back to Scotland, which um, is actually the the issue to which I don't have an answer. I heard that there was a poll with Labour at twelve percent in mm. Scotland. Wow. I don't know if that's true, but. We need to win both people who voted for independence and people who voted against independence to stay in the UK. Yeah. And is the dilemma we've got in Scotland the same one that we had with Brexit? Oh, yes. And trying to please Remainers and Leavers, where if you're Scottish and you, you're strongly independent, you vote SNP. If you're strongly unionist, then you might vote Tory particularly mm. with Ruth Davidson giving mm. them a human face and yeah. so forth. So unless there's a way of rising above co the constitutional issue and getting on to things like housing, education, transport, benefits, pensions, the whole sort of bread and butter stuff, then we may get trapped in the same sort of dilemma as Brexit. But I would need people from Scotland to tell me whether that's a, a, a well first to tell me whether it's a, an a, analogy that makes sense and secondly mm. to tell me how we solve I th it. I think if we can kind of in Scotland especially in Scotland can get people to vote with a bit of a sense of urgency especially given the current circumstances and explain that as much as a referendum is unlikely under Boris Johnson it's just not going to happen. Uh, then they're not going to allow a referendum so voting for the SNP as much as you might want to vote for them to get independence even if they won every single seat in Scotland the, the UK government wouldn't allow a referendum I don't think so <laughs> you know and, we, and, and, have, we, have Scot we have Scottish parliamentary elections in yeah in May 2021 and in Wales mm, yeah I mean also leave so 
winning the general election in 2024 is really a big ask. But unless mm -hmm. we start making progress, do better in 2021 mm. than we did in 2019. Yeah, I mean, so, we, de we definitely need to start... Yeah. Start, start being so maybe winning some elections at some point. That'd be quite nice. That would be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, then I think we'll call it a day. We need to win some elections. That's a good way yeah. to finish yeah. it. <laughs> and okay. it, it really was lovely to have you on today. You're one of my heroes in politics, and I'm sure you will be to a lot of our yeah. members yeah, well, in, in mean, Labour. Don't do, don't do the obituaries yet. <laughs> I actually thought I thought I'd had the obituaries in 2018. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I, I was just really looking forward to you coming on the podcast and actually speaking with you. And it's it's not been a disappointment. It really hasn't. So thank you so much. Um, all the best with the campaign. I know it's already going pretty well, but there's still more to do, and we're behind you every step of the way. Okay. Thank you very much.